Well, several months ago, my, my wife, Deanna, and I decided we were going to rent the movie The Vow. Has anybody seen The Vow? It's actually a pretty great movie, um, and I, I have no problem commending it to you. Um, it's a rather remarkable story of, of tenacious love. And um, just for those who haven't seen it, the kind of the plot of the story is fairly, fairly easy. It's about these two people who fall in love, and they get married, and, and shortly after their, their wedding... Um, they have this tragic car accident, which leaves the, the woman, the wife, the newly married wife, uh, in a coma with some uh, brain damage of sorts. Well, when she comes out of the coma, um, she's missing 18 months of her memory, including um, how she fell in love with her husband. Um, she doesn't remember the wedding. So for all practical purposes, after the coma, she wakes up and her husband is an absolute stranger to her. And uh, the way the rest of the movie basically is about his his desire and his attempts and his endurance to try and win back her love, despite the fact that at points she doesn't want to be with him, at points she's confused, um, amidst all the emotional turmoil and and at great financial cost to himself, he just endures in his love because he made a promise. You know, at the altar when he said, "Till death do us part," that he made that promise and. And he was true to the end of the movie to his vow to, to, to do whatever he could to win back the love of his wife, which is why the movie's called, you know, The Vow. Really interesting um, movie and, and very, very supportive of, of what happens at the altar when people say I do to each other in marriage. Well, I heard that that movie was based upon a true story. So I thought I got to check out what the true story is. Is it better or worse than the movie? You know, I like the movie. Well, I, I did some digging and, and read the real story. And actually, the real story is more powerful than the movie because Hollywood de-Christianized the story. Really interesting. Um, the real story, and you can go read it, and I'd encourage you to, is, is about a, a couple by the name of, his name is Kim. It's not like a girl's name, but his name's Kim. Her name is Cricket, and their last name is Carpenter. Now, say those three things fast. You know, Kim, Cricket, Carpenter. But... Basically, the part the movie got right was that they, they, they did fall in love, they, they got married, um, that there was a tragic accident, that she lost her memory and couldn't remember who her husband was. That, that, that part of the story is true in the movie. Um, what isn't true in the movie is that both parties stick in the marriage. Um, not only is the husband the hero for, for sticking it out and remaining true to his promise till death to his part, despite the fact that his wife doesn't know him, but... Um, by her own testimony admission, she stuck with the marriage too to a guy that was for her a complete stranger. She didn't leave. Interesting that uh, put yourself in that position, you'll wake up one day and realize I'm married to a person I don't even know. But she stuck with it. And when asked, like, why did you stick with it? This is what she said. This is why I say they did Christianize the movie. Once I accepted that I was married to this man named Kim and I had been in an accident, I just kind of went with it. And here's why. She says, I trusted what my parents said and I had wedding pictures and videos. You can't deny that you got married. You know, videos right in front of you. So her parents said, yes, you got married. Here are the pictures. Here are the videos. And then she says, and I learned, or, and I turned, I turned to the Lord. And she told Fox News, um, in terms of her commitment, ultimately it's a commitment to the Lord, not just to a man, who in this case was a stranger. She said, you make a promise before God with your wedding vows. 
You make a promise before God with your wedding vows. And so the, the story really is um, how two people in their trust in the Lord managed to remain true to their vows and true to their promises in marriage. Now, we've, most of us have probably heard of, we've thought about the fact that, you know, a promise is only as good as a person who makes it. But in this case, and in this story, both people, when they said, I do, before the altar, um, those words were more than just words. They were a wholehearted commitment of will, regardless of cost. And their lives testify to their promises, and they're keeping their promises. Now, the reason I, I use that is because one of the great pictures that God has offered to us as his church by which we can understand our relationship to him is the picture of marriage. That God has, has referred to himself and wants us to see him as a husband type of person. And that we as his people, his church, which would include the people who believed in the time of Israel, um, were, are his bride, his wife. Um, it's the most intimate picture you can find um, anywhere on planet Earth of, of a husband and wife. And despite the fact that, as recorded in history and as recorded in church history, the bride, the wife of the Lord, is oftentimes one who wanders and fails and falls and her white dress is tarnished with dirt and stains. And yet, what's interesting is that God remains true to his promise. Just the idea that Almighty God himself would make a promise to a sinful people is itself remarkably gracious. So is the kind of person he is, tenacious in his love and his commitment to his promise. And I, I want you to take you back to one of the earliest, greatest promises in the Old Testament, which winds its way through the Bible to Jesus and ultimately into our future. It is, it is not just the promise made to Abraham, but it is our promise in Jesus Christ. And one of the ways that you can awaken and strengthen hope is by focusing on what is promised. So I want to take you here to Romans chapter 4, and I'm, I'm going to read, and there are three words that I'm going to focus on. One is um, promise, the other is guarantee, and the last one is hope, because this is the advent of hope. Again, wanting to lift up this idea of promise so as to build hope. Let me read it for you. Some of it I will comment on, some of it I will not. Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring, this is 1,800 years roughly before Jesus was ever born. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent, to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope. I love that part. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. That's the promise. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which is as, as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, 
but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Now, this is just one section in a larger argument uh, where Paul is showing that, that our salvation comes through faith, not through performance of the law. Um, or that is our works. But in this part, he really focuses in on and expands on and explains how, um, how hope works, to what it's tied, and why we should hope. And Abraham is a kind of example for us by which we can, we can look at our own lives and ask ourselves, do we hope this way, and why should we hope? Well, as I said, three words. Well, the first word is, is promise. Let me just, um, just talk about the substance of what is promised here in this particular paragraph. Two things are promised to Abraham. One is that he would be heir of the world, and the second is that he would be um, the father of a great family of nations. One is found in verse 13, the other is found in verse 18. It says the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. And then the second one down in verse 18, that he should become the father of many nations, that is a great family of nations, as he had been told, and here's the part of the promise, so shall your offspring be. Heir of the world and a father of, of a great family of nations, those two things. Now, sometimes what we often fail to do is when we read things like this to connect the dots of the Bible, which I think is extremely important, that what is is promised here to Abraham is an echo of what God told Adam in the Garden of Eden. That when God came to Adam and Eve, he said to them, um, be fruitful and multiply. That is, in many respects, Adam was created and commissioned to be a father of a great people that would inhabit planet Earth, a father of many peoples. At the same time, he was told to exercise loving and benevolent dominion over the earth, which means he was the rightful, Adam was the rightful heir of the earth. Two things, a father of a great family of peoples and also the heir of the world. So when God comes to Abraham here and he says, um, you are going to be heir of the world and your father of many nations, he's basically saying to Abraham, that I'm going to complete what I started in Adam, which he failed to do. But the reality of it and the completion of it is going to rest upon my grace and my promises. I am going to make it happen. And the the Bible is is very clear that God swore an oath on his own name. And if he fails to complete the promise, he fails to be God himself. So he promises you're going to be an heir of the world and you're going to be a father of, of many nations. Um, Heir of the world. Now, you've got to kind of stop and reflect and pause over that a little bit and let it sink in. Most of us know what an heir is, is someone who inherits something from somebody else. Now, I've had relatives die, but I have, to this point in my life, never had land um, willed to me. I have, to date, um, inherited a grandfather clock, some silver cups, some dishes, some clothes, some shoes, some historical family memorabilia, which are shoved in a drawer, which I'll probably never look at, and a bunch of junk. That's, that's kind of what I've inherited to this point. And as I said, I haven't yet been willed land, real estate. There's something about real estate. It's, it's really one of the most real things, which is why real comes before estate, that we have. Um, houses burn, they fall apart, they leak, um, cars rust. Everything we have pretty much rusts and falls apart, but land is land. It's real state. 
And you know, a couple years ago, I actually was on a will for land, a parcel of land that, um, that my family had had for three generations, but I was number two on the list. There was another guy who was primary on the list, and if he died, then it would go to me. Well, he didn't die, so it went to him. And it, it, even the prospect, though, of thinking, wow, I'm number two on the list, kind of made me excited and in a twisted way, hoping that maybe God in his providence would remove number one. But, <laughs> but he didn't. And so uh, we watched the f- family plot go to somebody else, and it was kind of a feeling of loss. But interesting, that kind of excitement over something inherited. And what's interesting is God comes to Abraham, and he says, you are going to inherit the world. Every square inch of planet Earth, the fields and the forests and the plains and the mountains and the valleys and the rivers and the streams and the ponds and the lakes and the seas and the oceans and everything that fills the seas, oceans, lakes, rivers, and streams and everything that walks and creeps on the ground, it's all yours. I am making you heir of the world. That is a pretty magnificent promise. And a world that will be filled with a family that comes from you and shares in your faith. Now that's part of um, what Paul draws out here is that this wasn't just a promise to Abraham. But this was also a promise to all of his offspring. And we, according to verse 16, are part of his offspring. Not because we're Jewish in our heritage, but because we share in the same faith. That if we really trust God at his word, we trust in the promises of God, we trust in the works of God, we trust that God is going to make good on his word, then we are part of his family. And this promise made 3,800 years ago is our promise. Inherit, we inherit the world and with it a great family. And, and if we really believe that, like... Um, then it has a a way of of getting our eyes off of the issues that we're often bogged down by and discouraged by because we see that off in the distance there's something so magnificent, so wonderful, and whatever's going on here can't take that away. Um, Paul kind of brings that out later on in in the book when he talks about, you know, the present sufferings of this life don't compare to the glory of what's, what we're headed to, which is the inheritance um, with which we share. I love that part. One of my favorite parts of Romans is chapter 8, verse 18, where he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, and he was beaten, he was shipwrecked, he was imprisoned, he was stoned. I mean, the guy suffered a lot. He recognized this isn't anything compared to what lies ahead as he looked forward to this new world, uh, new earth. He says, For the creation waits an eager longing. The the trees, streams, forests, the mountains, they eagerly long for the revealing of the sons of God. That's the family. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtaining the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This is a completion. What he's talking about here is the completion of what was promised to Abraham. A world, inheriting a world, a new world, a world that doesn't decay, a world that doesn't break down, a world where there's no sin, a world where there's no domination, a world where there's no disappointment, no tears, and no suffering. Filled with a great people. Now, again, that should have a way of of de-emphasizing or decreasing the present sufferings and 
and giving us a sense of inspired hope that, wow, this is worth living for. It allows present joy that's not dependent upon how well you're doing in your marriage, your finances, or at work. Because it's bigger than that. And it's more certain than that. That's kind of the substance of the hope, which is ours also by faith. As I said earlier, however, the promise is only as good as the one who makes it. And that's something else that Paul wants to draw attention to is that he, he cements the promise of God firmly in the character of God. That is, he cements the promise in the character because a promise is only as good as the one who makes the promise. So here, right in the middle of this paragraph, verse 17, we read, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. It's part of the promise. In the presence of the God in whom he believed. Now, here's the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. A God who raises the dead and a God who calls things that don't exist into existence. Resurrection and creation out of nothing. That's a way of saying he can do anything he wishes. He's all-powerful. And everything that we create, by contrast, is created out of previously created things. You know, whoever made this iPad, they, they mined the silicon and the copper and whatever else they needed to make this thing, the aluminum. They, they, they used pre-created things in order to put it into this form. Um, a painter takes paints and colors that were previously created on a canvas that was pre-created and creates based upon what was already created. All we do in creation, you and I as humans, is we recycle old creation and make new creations out of it. God didn't do that. He didn't have to recycle anything. He simply spoke and, and nothing came into existence. That is, everything came into existence out of nothing. And a God who can do that, who can, who can call um, dead matter to life, a God who can call the universe out of absolutely nothing, complete absence, is a God who can do anything. And that is precisely Paul's point, is that he is the one who promised. So he will ensure, he will guarantee that his promise will come to us. Now again, by contrast to you and I, when you and I make promises to each other, or we make promises to the bank, it's always conditioned upon the fact that we, in the moment, will have the power to follow through on that promise. And our power is limited. So, for example, when you went to the, the title company and signed your loan documents, you were, in effect, promising that if everything stays the way it currently is, still have a job and so forth, that you are going to be faithful to pay the agreed-upon amount. That is, in effect, your promising. Well, what happens when a hurricane comes and just completely destroys your city? Or you lose your job, or the economy tanks, or, or you find yourself, you know, in an accident and incapable of actually working? well, then you're not going to have the wherewithal, the power, the means by which to fulfill your commitment, your promise. Now, we should be people who fulfill our promises, both in marriage and elsewhere, because we're people who are called to reflect our Father, who never gives out on a promise. However, there are times when our limited power cannot actually make good on promises that we make, because our power is limited. 
And sometimes things lie outside the boundaries of our control, which is why they talk about acts of God and insurance, right? Because there are some things we just do not control. I can tell my son, I will be, at, I promise I will be at your soccer game on Saturday. But if I get hit by a motorcycle or a truck um, and I can't make it, I don't really like that thought very much. Um, I won't have kept my promise. It wasn't a moral compromise on my side. It's just that I have, we have limited power. The point is that God ensures, the power of God ensures that his promise will come to fruition. He doesn't need the FDIC to ensure his words. He's the one who creates everything out of nothing and raises the dead to life, which means it's absolutely 100% ironclad certain that he's going to follow through on this promise to us. A world filled with a great people enjoying my presence. That's his promise that he makes to Adam and through Christ to us. To us. The God who is, you know, from everlasting to everlasting, the creator of the ends of the earth, the one who calls himself Alpha Omega, the one who declares the beginning and the end. Um, he's the one who says, I promise. That just kind of makes me tremble a little bit. He, he says to us, I promise. And even when we wander, he still is, I still promise. I am your husband and I promise. Which then finally leads to um, the third word that I talked about, which is hope. Now we, the last part, you see how Abraham responded. Here's that God has promised a new world with a great family, and he... Um, promises and guarantees based upon who he is. He is the guarantee, his character, his power. Um, but we see how Abraham, as a man of faith, responds to God's promise. And that, too, is, is a, a, a rather vivid, staggering example of how God wants us to live in relation to his words and to his promise to us. Notice down in verse 18, it says, In hope he, Abraham, in hope, he believed against hope. Sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? In hope, he believed against hope that he would become the father of many nations. In hope, against hope, he believed the promise. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be, be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which is good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. And then again in verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God in his life and believed that God was actually going to follow through on this. He hoped against hope. The reason it's written that way is because he had an impossible situation, which from all outward um, conventional wisdom was, was an impossibility. The immediate promise was for Abraham to have a son. But Abraham's body is 100 years old, as good as dead. Like, that's politically correct, isn't it? 100 years old, as good as dead. And then, to make matters worse, his wife, Sarah, is in her 90s. How is it that a woman in her 90s is going to give birth to a child. As all conventional wisdom would say, it's not gonna happen. Doesn't make a difference how much wheatgrass or acai berry juice you drink or how much oil of Olay you put on your body or how many times you go to 24 hour fitness and work your body up. You're not gonna have kids in your 90s. There's no hope for that. 
So when God promised a son, he was hoping in God against the hope that the world has to give, which says it's impossible. He was hoping and trusting that God would make good on his word, even though it seemed impossible. That's when the naysayers are saying God's not going to follow through on his word. When the world in which we live says, you know, that whole Jesus coming back thing, that's really a myth. When we feel in our own hearts like, well, it's really not going to happen. I say it with my lips, but I don't believe it with my heart. We're not hoping against hope. We're buying into the hopelessness of the world. Rather than saying that the Lord promised. He said, I promise. He swore by his own name. And therefore, I am going to trust. I'm going to hope against hope. I am not going to give in to unbelief. And I'm not going to waver concerning the promise of God because he promised. And he's the one who raises the dead. And he's the one who brings everything out of nothing. And it's as we give glory to him in the middle of our often dreary and dim lives as we struggle with issues that our faith does grow in that promise. We're able to be lifted up out of the mire and say, yes, that's what I believe, that's where I'm headed, and that gives me strength for tomorrow and the next day. Hoping against hope. But here's one more thing, just add this, because this puts him in the exact same place we're in. While he did receive Isaac as promised, Abraham in his lifetime never saw the inheritance of the world And he didn't get to see the family of nations that would come from him. You know what that means? That means his hope went beyond his own life. It went beyond death. Not only did he hope against hope in the impossible, but he hoped beyond death. He was willing to know that even if I don't see God's promise happen in my lifetime, I'm still going to believe it and hope in it. And that, I think, is tremendous um, encouragement, exhortation to you and I. uh, Does our hope in the promise of God extend beyond this little vapor we call life? Or is all of our hoping about the next promotion or the next um, thing, the next toy, the next retirement, getting to a place where you can actually live again? Is that what we're living for? Because if it is, that means this world is an idolatry to us. And I think the Lord says to us by nature of the promise, trust in my promise. I'm promising a new world with a new family where I will see you face to face. You will no longer see through a glass dimly, but you'll see me face to face. And that is beyond probably our life too. Will we die in that hope? Will we live in that hope and not just live for the here and live for the now? Because sometimes, someday, we're going to hear that revelation statement in Revelation 11, which is part of Handel's Messiah. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. The kingdom of this world, which we inherit, has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Jesus. Now that's hope, my friends. And that's where we must live. That's where we must meditate and think and allow ourselves each day and coming in on a corporate worship Sunday and being reminded that, one, we were bought by the blood of Jesus, which creates a sense of gratitude in my heart, but he's taking us someplace that can't be taken away that's bigger and better than anything I can possibly imagine and to live in that hope. 
And I'll finish with this. Because if I didn't, then I would have been a miserable failure in my message. The only way that this astounding promise that God, our husband, says, I promise, I vow, could happen was through the seed of Abraham. Capital S-E-E-D. And I'm not talking about Isaac. You read Isaac's life, he didn't really do anything all that extraordinary. Uh, As Paul would tell us in Galatians, that wasn't the ultimate seed or offspring to and through whom God would bring the promise and the blessing of promise to Abraham, his offspring, and to us. But through the Jesus, the son of Joseph, son of David, son of Judah, son of Abraham. And that is a hope um, that in him who is the heir of all things, Jesus is the heir of all things, and he is the one who has purchased by his blood every tribe, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He is the origin of the new family, and he's the one who will recreate the new world. He is the fulfillment of the promise and the fulfiller of the promise. In a work of great generosity and love on his part, he then makes those who trust in him co-heirs with him. Co-heirs of a world, of a great family, and of the presence of God himself. That his death explains or shows to us that at the cross marked the beginning of the end of the reign of sin and death for all who would call upon his name. And his resurrection awakens new life, makes a new family, and will one day renew the world in which we will live with him forever. But it's all tied to him. It's all tied to him, which is why we look in hope for his return when the world will be made new and our family will be resurrected and rejoined together in the presence of, of Christ. And that, my friends, is is. is Biblical hope. That is hope. And I just pray as you enter this Christmas season, this is the first Sunday of Advent, that um, you can't get around presents and you can't get around um, people coming over and parties. But I I certainly pray that your heart and mind will be elevated above um, the frenzy of life, the season, just to remember where we're headed and allow that hope um, to generate a joy that is not that is not contingent upon our circumstances. This is who you are, and this is where we're going because God said, I promise. I promise. And that, my friends, is hope. Lord, you're good and gracious and kind. I just ask by your Holy Spirit, lift us up, lift our hearts up, lift our eyes up to behold... Um, the glory is set before us that have been purchased for us in in Jesus. Um, We are thankful, O God, for your grace and loving kindness. Our minds can't even begin to wrap themselves around um, what you have in store for your people. So generate and strengthen our hope in you because you promised in Christ's name.